Before we get started, I must provide you with this warning. This episode contains extremely graphic details that are a bit of a departure from the typical California Jimmy episode. It's the spookiest time of the year, and I'm not really a horror movie fan. However, I am interested in and intrigued by the real-life people who have inspired some of them. At least, the psychological ones anyway. So in honor of Halloween 2022, and all of the things that keep us up at night, this episode will have content involving animal cruelty, graphic violence, and sexual violence, and may not be suitable for some listeners. Enter this episode at your own risk. Fifteen-year-old Edmund was having a hard time getting along with both of his parents. But things really hadn't been the same since they got divorced some years ago. Edmund ended up having to move from his home state of California, the only place he'd ever known, all the way to Helena, Montana. What's in Helena, Montana? Big sky and country? Yeah, Edmund wasn't having it. But Montana was the least of Edmund's problems he would come to find. If he thought he was having a hard time getting along with his mom, it was even worse now that his dad was hundreds of miles away in California still. He might as well have been on Mars. Oh, and Edmund's sisters, the older one, Susan, and younger one, Alan. Their main form of entertainment was to bully and pick on Edmund especially Susan's. They learned it from their mother, who derived a great deal of joy belittling and humiliating her son. The one thing Edmund had going on for him was his size. At birth, Edmund was a whopping 13 pounds or 5.9 kilograms. By the time he started kindergarten, he towered over the rest of his classmates. It was something that would torment Edmund for his entire life, as he would eventually grow to the astounding height of 6 feet 9 inches or 2.06 meters tall. He was massive at birth. He was massive in school. Yet he was bullied relentlessly, not only by classmates, but by his own mother, who considered him to be the weird freak of the family. As Edmund grew older and bigger, his mother, Clarnell, began locking him in their rat-infested basement. And it's really sad. Instead of looking for the advantages of being so tall and the things Edmund could have done to have turned it into something to work for him instead of a hindrance, for instance, starting in school, Edmund 
could have been a star athlete, and that could have carried over into college and beyond. Instead, his mother chose to mock him incessantly. Edmund finally reached his breaking point, and it was sometime in 1963 when he ran away from home and returned to his father's house back in California. However, it didn't seem as though Edmund realized that it just wasn't his dad there anymore. In the time since he'd been in Montana, his father, Ed Jr., remarried, and if that wasn't enough, he had a stepson as well. Things didn't work out well for Edmund there either with his father, and on Christmas Day of 1963, he was sent to live with his father's parents, Edmund's grandparents, Ed Sr. and Maud. They lived on a sprawling ranch in North Fork, California, which is a rural area located in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountains, almost right smack in the middle of the state of California. Edmund spent time there during the holidays or the times that he was off school growing up. But now that he was stuck there permanently, so it seemed, he again wasn't having it. At the age of 15, he was only a few inches away from reaching his massively tall, full adult height. People were either intimidated by him or they made fun of him or they wanted to have nothing to do with him. It caused a great deal of awkwardness and anxiety when it came to social situations for Edmund. Over time, it manifested into one very bitter and angry young man, who he himself would later describe as a time bomb waiting to explode. There were countless times throughout Edmund's young life that there were indicators, red flags, that this was a guy who needed help, especially when flashes of his rage swelled to the surface. Unfortunately, help never came. At least when it did, it was either wrong or it was too late. Either nobody close to him noticed or knew or cared. In fact, the people who really should have been there for Edmund to see how tormented he was, his parents, his mother and father, they only made things worse. They all but guaranteed that Edmund was going to grow up to become one very troubled young man. But Really, how could anybody have anticipated what the future would hold? Edmund grew to hate his mother and the manner in which she treated him. As it turned out, even though he was living with his father's mom, she was exactly the same. She treated Edmund terribly, just as terribly as his mother. She was just as abusive, often belittled him, pushed him around, was mentally and emotionally abusive. Later on in life, Edmund described having fantasies about murdering his mother and grandmother, cutting up their bodies, doing things like swallowing their eyeballs and 
other bizarre, violent acts. When he was young and would engage in pretend or imaginary play with his sisters, Edmund's favorite game was to play gas chamber or electric chair. He would have his sister strap him down to a chair and to pretend they were flipping a switch. He would fall over onto his side, onto the ground, and writhe around pretending that thousands of volts of electricity was coursing through his whole body. As a child, he longed that the whole world would die a painful, violent death, and that he would be able to kill as many of them as he possibly could with his own bare hands. Edmund's fantasies started to cross over into reality when he first began displaying acts of violence towards his sister's dolls. He would cut off their heads and chop off their hands. He graduated to torturing insects and soon he began harming animals. He killed one of the family cats by burying it in the backyard. After it died, Edmund dug it up, decapitated it, and placed its head on a stake in the ground. When Edmund was 13, he killed a second family cat when he noticed it was being more affectionate towards his younger sister than towards him. He proceeded to cut the cat into pieces, and he kept some of those pieces as souvenirs hidden in his bedroom closet until his mom discovered them. Edmund also started being a peeping Tom. He would sneak out of the house in the middle of the night, go over to his second grade teacher's home, and peer at her through her window. Clarnell eventually began locking Edmund in the basement. She grew fearful that he would eventually do something to harm his sisters. But now Edmund has found himself stuck living with his grandparents, and with his grandmother treating him just as poorly as his mother did, his anger, frustrations, and violent fantasies, they followed him everywhere he went. That day in August of 1964, it had only been about eight months since Edmund's father dumped him at his grandparents' home. So on that summer day, Edmund had gotten into an argument with his grandmother. At the time, she was 66 years old and Edmund was only 15. But it wasn't only his anger towards his grandmother that overwhelmed him that morning. It was all the years of anger and resentment that he had towards his own mother, combined with his growing contemptuous feelings towards his grandmother. It was all starting to reach a fever pitch. Little did Edmund's grandmother know how very little it would take for her grandson's homicidal urges to take a flying leap out of his fantasy world and right into reality. Because following that argument, Edmund retrieved a rifle, one that his grandparents had confiscated from him earlier because they felt as though he was utilizing it unnecessarily to kill animals and wildlife on their property when he really didn't need to. When Edmund got the rifle, his grandmother issued him a warning do not go outside and shoot any birds. He answered back by raising his rifle, taking aim, and shooting her in the head one time. When Edmund's grandmother fell to the ground, he took aim once again and fired two more shots directly into her back. 
He set the rifle down and grabbed a kitchen knife and proceeded to plunge it into her back three times. And this would mark Edmund Kemper's first kill, one of many to come. The one thing that would set this killing apart from the ones that he would go on to commit was that this one was from a place of impulsivity rather than being predatory. That would change in less than a decade from the day he murdered his grandmother. The next thing Edmund was tasked with doing was to conceal what he had done. Considering he was already quite large for his age, moving his grandmother wasn't that much of a problem. So he proceeded to drag her bloodied, lifeless body into her bedroom. Whatever it was he was going to do next to conceal her corpse was thwarted by the unexpected arrival of his grandfather. At that time, grandfather was a little bit older than grandmother. He was 72. Ironically, it was he who gifted this very rifle to Edmund on the same day that he had come to live with them, the previous Christmas day. When Edmund heard the sound of his grandfather's car pulling up to the house, he came to the decision that he had no other choice but to do away with the old man as well. Edmund stared out the window as his grandfather prepared to park and exit his vehicle. He came out of the house, raised his rifle once again, aimed and fired. Grandfather fell to the ground next to his car. Edmund then took his grandfather's body into the garage and concealed it. In Edmund's mind, the feelings of anger and resentment that he had towards his own parents and their rejection of him was alleviated, at least for the time being, with the murder of his grandparents. Unsure of what to do next, Edmund ended up calling mother and confessed what he had done. She told him to call the police. Mother wasn't wrong when she was concerned about her son one day harming someone. She just didn't do anything to help him. If anything, Mother only made it worse. Was she sorry about what she had done when she found out that her son had murdered her former in-laws? Perhaps. It wasn't really going to make a difference to her then, but... It would, eventually, because Edmund Kemper wasn't one to let go of a grudge that easily. Edmund did as Mother instructed and phoned the police. They arrived at his grandparents' property shortly thereafter to find the teenager sitting patiently on the front porch waiting for them. He was much more calm than the average young man his age would be after gunning down his grandparents. Police took the lanky young man into custody. He was transported to the California Youth Authority where he was interviewed. And it would be during that interview when Edmund muttered one of the most infamous one-liners that would ever become associated with him. I killed her because I wanted to see what it felt like. It was in that moment when those police officers who were interrogating Edmund realized 
just how ice-cold and unfeeling this young man was. Edmund did go on to explain how he had become so frustrated with his grandmother and her constantly picking on him and picking fights with him that he just couldn't take it anymore. And why did he follow up with his grandfather's murder? He said it was because he felt like he needed to spare his grandfather the horror of discovering that his wife had been murdered by their own grandchild. It is interesting, if nothing else, how a mind like Edmund Kemper's is able to rationalize things such as murder. In 1964, a teenager doing such a thing gunning down his own grandparents. It was an act that was unthinkable. And for Edmund, that would go on to play right into his hands. He just needed to figure out a way to work a system that had a hard time wrapping their collective heads around the thought that they had a homicidal child on their hands. When Edmund was evaluated by a psychiatrist after being brought to the California Youth Authority, he was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. I'm no expert, but that sounds about right. Unfortunately, it wouldn't stick. It was also discovered that Edmund had a very high IQ that measured to the genius level. So with his diagnosis, Edmund was transferred out of the California Youth Authority and over to the Atascadero State Hospital for the criminally insane. Because Edmund was so highly intelligent and well-spoken, it seemed as though the people in charge of monitoring his mental health developed this sort of sense of security about him and his propensity for homicidal violence. In other words, people were getting too comfortable around the teenager to a point where Edmund was not only allowed access to the hospital's mental health assessment implements, he was even allowed to use them himself to assess his fellow inmates. During his time at the Atascadero Hospital for the Criminally Insane, Edmund actually took it upon himself to memorize what responses would work and which ones wouldn't on 28 different mental health assessment tests. In doing so, Edmund was able to prepare himself with what doctors wanted to hear in order for them to deem him rehabilitated and no longer a threat to society, which is exactly what happened. On Edmund's 21st birthday, December 18, 1969, he was deemed fit for release and he was set free. Edmund Kemper made California his new home for good. In the United States, murder used to be a thing that happened between people who generally knew one another, where there were situations that escalated from heated arguments to somebody winding up dead. But in some areas of California, in the 1970s, this wasn't quite the case. 
murders weren't falling into that same category. People, often young people and often women, not always, but mostly, would vanish or be discovered murdered. Their killers weren't captured so quickly, though. Identifying suspects or persons of interest wasn't that simple. Open and unsolved cases were piling up, and people were scared. It was a phenomenon that would take quite some time to identify, and that would be the phenomenon of the serial killer, one who was anonymous, one that stalked and hunted their victims, one that had for a long time been thinking about their first kill, and once they did it, they wanted more, and there would be no stopping them until they were captured or dead. What instilled fear in many Californians was the fact that some of these killers were breaking into homes, attacking and murdering the people who lived there. Killers like Charles Manson and those people associated with him. California was a breeding ground for this new kind of killer. And as a result, there was a spike in gun sales during those years. And it was a testament to that fear. It was unlike anything anyone had ever seen and for the next two decades, investigators from both the local communities and the federal government would work tirelessly to try and understand how a mind like that operates. Within a couple of years of Edmund being released from the Atascadero State Hospital for the Criminally Insane, there was yet another young man at the time who had also been held in a mental health institution and deemed to be an extreme danger to the community. But regardless of that, he was still placed in an outpatient treatment program, which pretty much allowed for this extremely dangerous individual to be out and about and free, left to his own devices. And his name was Herbert Mullins. And whenever Mr. Mullins failed to follow the doctor's orders, he became filled with unabashed, uncontrollable homicidal urges. For a period of time that spanned the final months of 1972 through the early months of 1973, a mother, her two children, a young girl, a man doing yard work, four people, who were enjoying a camping trip and a man of the cloth all of a sudden turned up dead. Mr. Mullins was not captured until February 13, 1973 when he killed the man working in his garden by pulling up in his vehicle, getting out, taking aim at him with his rifle and firing one time, striking him directly through the heart. A neighbor witnessed the shooting and managed to take down the license plate of the car that Mr. Mullins was driving. Within minutes, the plate was broadcast to every police officer on patrol and Mr. Mullins was pulled over and arrested without incident. When Mr. Mullins was released into the outpatient program, he had stopped taking his medications and that's when the 
homicidal urges returned. He said he heard voices. He claimed he was on a mission to save the people of California from a massive earthquake that would cause the whole state to break off and drop into the ocean. Despite his mental health diagnosis, Mr. Mullins was found sane, convicted, and sentenced to life in prison, and he died of natural causes on August 18th, 2022, at the age of 75. These were not the only killings that would be attributed to Mr. Mullins. Earlier in that same year that his killings began, the ones that he was convicted of, there were a string of hitchhikers that were inexplicably vanishing from the exact same areas where Mr. Mullins was killing. The interesting thing about Mr. Mullins is that he did not appear to have a consistent type or a modus operandi, if you will. Of the murders that Mr. Mullins was convicted of, the victims consisted of both males and females, old and young. They ranged in age from 4 to 72. The manner in which they were killed varied from being clubbed about the head, stabbed, dissected, beaten, shot, and oftentimes Mr. Mullins used a combination of two or more of those killing methods. Because the public had been in such a panic about these murders, which would amount to 21 of them in under a year, investigators made the announcement that Mr. Mullins was responsible for the earlier killings in 1972. So when Mr. Mullins was arrested in February of 1973, the announcement was that he was the man responsible for all the killings in the area. Therefore, the public fears were extinguished. The problem was, there was another killer responsible for the hitchhiker's disappearances. And this killer was much less random than Mr. Mullins was. And he was much more sadistic. What also set this other killer apart is that Mr. Mullins is what you may consider a spree killer. He was on a four-month-long killing spree, and it is evident in how he was all over the place with his victims and the manner in which he chose to murder each of them. This other man is what would eventually be coined a serial killer, and that other man was one Edmund Kemper III. His murders would begin roughly five months before Mr. Mullins' killings and would carry on for about two months after Mr. Mullins was pulled over and taken into custody. And just like Mr. Mullins, Edmund had also been diagnosed as suffering from paranoid schizophrenia after he was institutionalized for gunning down his grandparents. But all the institutionalization did for Edmund was teach him how to fool the doctors into thinking that he was mentally sound. So it made it easier for him to be released from custody when the time came for him to be up for parole. Edmund was found to have no flight of ideas, meaning that he didn't talk quickly or erratically, 
He didn't jump around randomly and rapidly between a variety of thoughts or ideas. And it's a symptom that may occur when somebody's in a state of mania, psychosis, or suffering from some type of neurodevelopmental condition. None of these things apparently applied to Edmund. Edmund was also found to have no delusions or hallucinations, no bizarre thoughts. He was introspective and intelligent. His IQ tested in the genius range, so certainly a candidate for Mensa. Because of his high IQ, Edmund was trained by the staff at Atascadero to administer psychiatric tests to other inmates. And one of the things that Edmund learned from speaking with others who were violent and had homicidal urges also was a thing that he would use just a few years down the road. What he learned was whatever you do, you never leave a witness alive. If you're going to rape women, then you're going to have to kill them too. The psychiatrists who were treating Edmund at Atascadero did note that in their conversations with him, it was their professional opinion that it was his own mother's incessant belittlement and humiliation that led to him being this way. It was her poking the bear that caused him to take his homicidal rage out onto his grandparents. Upon Edmund's release, the plan was for him to go back to living with his mother who was once again residing in California. But his psychiatrist strongly advised against him going to live with her out of concern that being around her and being near her would trigger violence in Edmund once again. But there were no other options. Edmund had no means of taking care of himself or living on his own, and the system itself wasn't equipped or required, really, to provide him any help either. And once Edmund was going to be released, there was no plan in place for there to be any kind of supervision outside of Edmund's mother. So Edmund was granted release from a Tuscadero when he was 21, and back he goes with mother, who by then had remarried and was living in the city of Aptos, California, located in Santa Cruz County. And once Edmund returned home to mother, she picked up from exactly where she had left off, treating him very poorly, berating him every chance she could. Mother has been described as a domineering, controlling, neurotic, with a very serious drinking problem. And yeah, not the best person to be sending a young man with homicidal tendencies to go and live with. Edmund's sisters, at least his older one, Susan, also took to picking on Edmund and bullying him to a point that it even had put his own life in danger at times. There was one occasion when Susan attempted to push Edmund into the path of an oncoming train there was another occasion where she shoved him into a swimming pool where he nearly drowned, having not yet learned how to swim. Edmund once had a close relationship with father and was absolutely devastated when he was made to go live with mother in Montana. 
He hated it. He was abused by both his mother and his sisters. He longed for escape, especially when he was locked alone in their dark, windowless, rat-infested basement. There was even a time when Edmund overheard mother mocking him over the phone to father, calling him names. Mother never showed Edmund any love. In fact, she withheld all affection, claiming that it was an effort to prevent Edmund from turning gay. Later in life, Edmund described mother as a very sick and angry woman, and he himself suspected that she may have had borderline personality disorder. Edmund's relationship with father grew even more fractured when he ran away from mother's house and ended up in Van Nuys, California with him only to be sent away a few months later to live in North Fork with his grandparents. He hated that. He hated being sent away. It was another sting of rejection, especially since father was remarried now and was raising a stepson instead of Edmund. After everything Edmund had gone through, he found himself back at mother's once again. Neighbors later described there being constant arguing coming from their home. Mother was frequently heard yelling and screaming at Edmund, so it was clear that things were just as toxic, if not more so, than they were before Edmund had become a killer. You would think that mother would tread carefully around her homicidal son. After all, he murdered his own grandparents. What made her think she could keep needling Edmund like she did? Did she not think or realize what she was doing? Or what her son was capable of? Perhaps she just needed to learn a lesson the hard way. A part of Edmund's requirements upon his release, he was to attend community college. And it was there Edmund excelled in all of the classes that he took, and he eventually found a career that he wanted to pursue, law enforcement. Edmund applied to the police academy. Unfortunately, his application was rejected. The reason was the same thing that had plagued him his entire life for as long as he could remember, his height. Edmund was told that he was too tall to become a police officer. So here again, Edmund found himself rejected and disappointed. But there was one small consolation that came of it. He became friends with some of the local police officers and was invited to get together with them at their favorite hangout called the jury room. The officers referred to him as Big Ed, and for the most part, they took a liking to him. He was smart and polite, and they didn't mind having him join them at the place that they all came to in order to wind down after work. Like many exceptionally large or tall men, Edmund was often seen as very gentle and soft-spoken, but also quite articulate and insightful, whose childhood hero was John Wayne, which is what he often talked about. If only those officers knew that 
one day they would gather there at their favorite bar to talk about Edmund and the absolutely unbelievable things that he would end up doing with Edmund sitting right there listening. Since entering the police force was off the table, Edmund was eventually hired to work for the California Department of Highways. After a string of menial jobs, this was the one that enabled Edmund to save up some money and finally be able to move out of mother's home. He found a roommate and they shared a place in Alameda, California, about two hours away from mother. Despite the distance, and despite the fact that mother despised her son, she continued to have the need to bother and harass Edmund at his new place. Mother called constantly and even showed up numerous times, unexpectedly and uninvited. Things, however, were starting to look up for Edmund. He was able to purchase for himself his first vehicle, a motorcycle, and he had a girlfriend, albeit she was too young for him and was still in high school. But the relationship was pretty serious and the couple did become engaged. However, Edmund hit some financial hard times. The early part of the 70s were struck hard by what is known as the Great Inflation of the 1970s, which saw the highest inflation rates in history, with interest rates rising to nearly 20%. As a result, Edmund was forced to move home again with mother. Then something happened which would mark a pivotal point in Edmund's life. While riding his motorcycle, Edmund ended up getting into not one, but two accidents. And one of those accidents, the second one, his arm was severely injured and he ended up receiving a settlement of $15,000, which today would be more than $106,000. With part of this settlement money, Edmund purchased for himself his first car, a 1969 yellow Ford Galaxy. He was really proud of it, and he really wanted to start cruising around. And it was then that Edmund began to notice that he would frequently see women hitchhiking. At the time, it was a very popular way to get around, especially for college girls. Edmund began picking some of them up and giving them rides. Later on, Edmund would estimate that he gave somewhere around 150 rides without incident. At least nothing outside of Edmund's own inner thoughts anyway. Also with this settlement money, he was able to move back in with his roommate. Edmund would see these girls along the side of the road and he would size them up, look them over, and once they got inside his car, his mind would fill with thoughts and fantasies as to what he wanted to do to them and with them and what he could do. Soon, the urges began building up inside of him. It was an urge to attack and rape these women. But remember what Edmund had learned back at his days at a Tuscadero 
when he was actually given the training and the tools to administer psychiatric tests on other violent homicidal inmates, when he learned that he is to leave no witnesses alive, that if he rapes, he kills. So it wasn't simply the urge to assault these women. It was a need to murder them, but not necessarily out of necessity or practicality. At some point in Edmund's thinking process, it just became an urge to kill just to kill. The homicidal urge. It's a thing that Edmund affectionately called his little zapples. It's an uncontrollable desire to kill. Soon, Edmund began turning his urges and fantasies into reality once again. He began bringing implements of murder along with him. Knives, handcuffs, blankets, plastic bags. Eventually, he would purchase a gun. And he would stow these items away and out of sight in the trunk of his car. And with that, it was only a matter of time before Edmund would find just the right girl at just the right time when his little zapples began taking over, that he would begin the killing. The 1970s marked a very troubling period of time when people were fearful of an unprecedented number of killings and killers that spanned the state of California. There were the Zodiac killings, the Manson family killings, and what was fresh in the minds of those in the Santa Cruz, California area was the recent trial and conviction of spree killer John Frazier, who had murdered five people on October 19, 1970. Mr. Frazier went on trial in late 1971 and was convicted and sentenced to death in November but that sentence was commuted to life in prison after the death penalty was abolished in 1972. It would be only a short six months after Mr. Frazier's conviction that the hitchhikers began vanishing. On Sunday, May 7, 1972, 18-year-olds Marianne Pesci and Anita Luchessa were hitchhiking from Fresno State to Stanford to meet up with some friends but the girls never arrived. Those friends that they were supposed to meet up with reached out to their families and their families contacted police to report Marianne and Anita missing. The problem was that not only was hitchhiking all too common at the time, so was running away. And all too frequently, police usually made that their go-to rationalization because there was virtually nothing to indicate where their girls were going, what their plan was, where they might be, and whether or not they could have just run away. So there was little to nothing that law enforcement was willing or able to do. Well, it just so happened that on that day, while Marianne and Anita were hitchhiking, Edmund was driving around in the area in his galaxy, looking perhaps hunting for hitchhikers when he came across Marianne and Anita. He picked them up. He gained their trust. 
he assured them that he would get them to Stanford. Edmund's little zapples began creeping in, and after about an hour of driving, he had taken them to a very secluded area near where he lived and worked in Alameda. You know, Edmund's time working for the Department of Highways enabled him to become very familiar with the most out-of-the-way, private, secluded places that were accessible by car. So yeah, the state of California not only facilitated the manner in which to carry out Edmund's acts of evil, it also taught him the best places to do it too. At some point, Edmund was able to change the direction that he was headed, which was initially Marianne and Anita's destination. Instead, they were headed towards what would be his destination, and he did so without either of the girls noticing. Once he got them to this secluded place, Edmund began his attack. He placed handcuffs on Marianne and ordered Anita to get into the trunk. Once Anita was securely inside the trunk, Edmund armed himself with his knife and stabbed Marianne, and then he strangled her until she stopped moving. Anita would meet the same fate. He then placed both of their bodies into the trunk and drove to his place. On the way there, Edmund was pulled over and cited for having a broken taillight. However, he was able to keep his cool, never tipping his hand that he had two dead bodies right there in his trunk. Having his place to himself, Edmund carried the bodies inside one at a time. It was there he removed their clothing and took pictures of their dead corpses, after which he defiled their bodies. And when he was finished, he dismembered and decapitated them. He placed their body parts into a number of trash bags and drove them out to the Loma Prieta mountain where he disposed of the bags. Before he got rid of Marianne and Anita's heads, he defiled them once again and then tossed them into a ravine. On August 15th, Marianne's skull was discovered, but despite an extensive search, no other remains of either of the girls was ever found. It was presumed that Anita had also met with foul play. On Thursday, September 14, 1972, 15-year-old Aiko Ku was rushing to catch the bus so she could make it to dance class that afternoon, but she didn't make it in time. The bus had gone on without her. So, Aku decided to hitchhike. Even though she had promised her mother that she wouldn't, since she had recently been ticketed for doing just that, unfortunately, Aku did it anyway, and the person who would pick her up was Edmund and he did the same exact thing as he did with Marianne and Anita. He drove Aiku to a remote area where Edmund took out a gun that he had recently acquired. However, an interesting thing happened, and it's frustrating when you find out what it was, because it shows either how innocent 
or naive or just too frightened, like who was. But Edmund somehow locked himself out of his own car. Even though Aiku was locked inside the car with the gun, she still let him back in. And once he got back inside the car, he placed his massive hands around her neck and squeezed until she went unconscious. And from there, he raped and murdered her. Edmund then placed Aiku's body in his trunk. And before going back home, Edmund stopped and treated himself to a couple of drinks at a local bar. When he was done, Edmund left the bar, but before getting back into his vehicle to drive home, he stopped and opened the trunk so he could take a look at Aku's body once again to admire what he had done. And when he arrived home, he did the same things that he did to Marianne and Anita to Aiku. He defiled her dead body, dismembered and decapitated her. He placed her body parts into garbage bags and dumped her remains as he had with the others. Aiku's mother reported her daughter missing that same day that she was killed. She made up missing persons flyers and hung them up everywhere that she could. But her mother never received one single tip from anyone. And Aiku, no remnants of her have ever been found. One month later, on October 13, 1972, Mr. Herbert Mullins would begin his string of 13 murders that would carry on over the course of the next four months until he was captured in February of 1973. And it would be during those four months that Edmonds and Mr. Mullins' killings would overlap. On October 13th, Mr. Mullins beat 55-year-old Lawrence White to death with a baseball bat. On October 24th, he stabbed 24-year-old Mary Gofoyle to death. It's reported that he also dissected her. I picture that being something you would do with the innards of a frog in science class in high school, but you may interpret that as you will. On November 2nd, Mr. Mullins beat and stabbed to death 64-year-old Henry Tomei. After a three-month break, on January 7, 1973, Edmund murdered next. By this time, he was back living with mother, and on that day, as he was cruising around near Cabrillo College, he picked up another 18-year-old hitchhiker named Cindy Shaw. Sticking to his M.O., he drove Cindy to a secluded area where he shot her to death. He placed Cindy's body into his trunk and drove home to Mother's house. When he carried Cindy's body inside, he placed her in his closet in order to keep her hidden away until the next morning when Mother left for work. When she was gone, Edmund defiled Cindy's body. And when he was finished, he placed her into the bathtub. But before dismembering and decapitating Cindy, he removed that bullet that he killed her with. So nobody could ever link him back to her remains, if anybody ever found them. Edmund then proceeded to get rid of Cindy's remains 
by throwing them over the side of a cliff overlooking the Pacific Ocean, just off Pacific Coast Highway. This time, however, Edmund did things a little bit differently because he wasn't quite ready just yet to completely let go of Cindy. So he held on to her head for several days afterwards, during which time he repeatedly defiled her severed head before burying it in mother's yard, face up, just outside her bedroom window. Edmund later explained that he did this for mother because she always wanted people to look up to her. Edmund also said that he would look out his own window at the place where he buried Cindy's head and speak to it in a loving way, in the way that you would talk to somebody that you're in love with, like your girlfriend or your wife. Two days later, Cindy's arms and legs were found on the cliff and her upper torso washed up onto the beach. Shortly afterwards, her lower torso washed up as well, and a person surfing nearby discovered Cindy's left hand. Cindy's head and her right hand were never recovered. An autopsy determined that Cindy had been disarticulated by way of a power saw. The media began referring to the killer as the chopper or the butcher. Going back to Mr. Mullins, he was up next with a quintuple murder that he committed on January 25, 1973, just 18 days after Cindy was murdered. Mr. Mullins shot 25-year-old Jim Gianera three times in the back, killing him. He shot 21-year-old Joan Gianera twice, once in the neck and once in the head, and then he stabbed her three times, killing her. He then shot 29-year-old Kathy Francis to death and stabbed her three times post-mortem. And then he shot her two children, 4-year-old Damien and 9-year-old David, both in the head, and then he stabbed both of them post-mortem as well. That was five murders all in one day for Mr. Mullins. Going back to Edmund, on February 5, 1973, 11 days after Mr. Mullins's quintuple murder, Edmund had a big fight with Mother, which led to him abruptly leaving in order to look for hitchhikers to pick up. By this time, however, the uptick in the killings and vanishings going on in the Santa Cruz area with the local college students, the co-eds in particular, they weren't being advised to stop hitchhiking, which seems like it would have made the most sense. Instead, they were being advised to be wary of who they get into cars with and to only accept rides from people who had university decals or bumper stickers on their vehicle. That seems like it makes absolutely no sense, but perhaps it wasn't that easy to get your hands on an official university decal. But for Edmund, it was simple. And that's because Mother was an employee at the University of California at Santa Cruz. It was very easy for him to get an official decal, which he placed on his Ford Galaxy. 
following that fight with mother, Edmund went cruising around the UCSC campus. And that is when he spotted hitchhikers 23-year-old Rosalind Thorpe and 20-year-old Allison Liu. Once Edmund had the girls in his car, he shot both of them to death. He wrapped them in blankets and placed them in his trunk. This time, however, he did do things a little bit differently. He decided that the most efficient way to do things would be to decapitate both girls while they were in the trunk of his car and bring their bodies inside his house without their heads. Edmund spent the rest of the day and night defiling both of their headless bodies. When he was finished, he again found and removed the bullets that were used to kill them. He then dismembered them and got rid of their body parts the following morning. Some, but not all of their remains were recovered about a week later in Eden Canyon. In March, more of their remains were found off Pacific Coast Highway. Going back to Mr. Mullins for the final time on February 10, 1973, he committed a quadruple murder by shooting 18-year-old David Olicker, 18-year-old Robert Spector, 19-year-old Brian Card, and 15-year-old Mark Drabilbus. All four of these young men were camping when they were all shot in the head execution style. Three days later, on February 13th, Mr. Mullins carried out his final murder when he shot 72-year-old Fred Perez through the heart one time as he was out in his yard working on his garden. This is when the neighbor who witnessed the shooting managed to take down Mr. Mullins' license plate, and he was subsequently pulled over and arrested that same day. When Mr. Mullins was arrested, investigators were able to link him to all of the shootings, but they weren't necessarily able to make any solid connections to Cindy Shaw's or Marianne Pesci's murder or the vanishings of the other hitchhikers. It didn't seem to really match Mr. Mullins' modus operandi, as he wasn't one to kidnap or dismember his victims. So even though he was in custody, it had all turned into this media frenzy that did nothing but perpetuate the terror and the fear across Santa Cruz County. And the media were only making things worse by reporting on things that weren't even really true or proven to be fact. They were reporting on rumors, which were often overly exaggerated in an effort for these reporters to gain the highest ratings and viewership. Law enforcement were frustrated with the media and the public was terrified, especially when news reports started linking the spike in murders to being related to some sort of satanic rituals. The worst of the reporters was this woman named Marilyn Baker. She started reporting on a satanic link to the killings and was suggesting that whoever was kidnapping these hitchhikers was keeping them for several days before killing them, likely torturing them. She even said, without anything to substantiate her claim, that the killer was probably a lesbian or a transgender woman and suggested that police were bungling the case for not following up on such leads. 
She reported to the public that the killer she was calling the butcher only killed on Mondays after dusk and only on nights with a full moon, which was completely false. But she did it anyway, and as she reported this, she would claim that this was all proof that this had to do with satanic cult killings. Three weeks after Mr. Mullins was arrested and a month after Edmund's last pair of murders, on March 4, 1973, a couple who were out hiking discovered a jawbone and a human skull very close to Pacific Coast Highway in San Mateo County. When the remains were examined, it was determined that that skull and that jawbone came from two separate individuals. A search of the area led to the recovery of yet another skull, so it was confirmed that they had two victims that were likely killed together or very close in time to one another. Law enforcement had information about numerous missing female hitchhikers, so they were able to compare those reports to the skulls that they had found, and with that they were able to positively identify those skulls as belonging to Edmund's February 5th victims, Rosalind, who was shot in the head once, and Allison, who had been shot in the head twice. As a result of these killings, enrollment at UC Santa Cruz dropped significantly, as this area had appeared to have turned into some sort of hunting ground for someone who was making people vanish or making people dead, and this killer was mostly targeting young women. And what made this even more horrifying was the fact that this killer was separating people from their arms and their legs and their heads. Law enforcement was stumped. They had little to no clues as to who this killer or killers might be. Even though they tried linking all the killings to Mr. Mullins, since they had him in custody, that would be the easy way to go about things. They knew deep down inside that the murders of the hitchhiking college students just wasn't the way that Mr. Mullins did things. He just didn't pick up hitchhikers and he certainly didn't make a habit of dismembering and decapitating his victims either. Investigators on the case really didn't have to wait long, however, to identify a suspect who had become dubbed the co-ed killer. And it wasn't the police who had anything to do with identifying this killer. It was the killer himself who decided to put an end to the murdering, but not until he made one last kill. And that would be the woman for whom he had been the bane of her existence, the woman who hated him but for some reason could not let him go. And that would be Mother. On Friday, April 20th, 1973, Mother arrived home from an evening out with friends. The sound of her coming home and into the house, it woke up a sleeping Edmund. Mother settled into bed, and just as she picked up a book to read, Edmund came into her bedroom. Annoyed with him, Mother stated, I suppose you're going to want me to stay up all night and talk. But Edmund told Mother, no, it's fine. Just, I wanted to say goodnight. Edmund went back into his bedroom and waited until Mother turned off the lights and went to bed. 
once he knew she was asleep? Edmund armed himself with a claw hammer and a pen knife. He quietly slipped into mother's bedroom and proceeded to bludgeon her about the head with the hammer. And to ensure that she was dead, Edmund took his pen knife and slit her throat from ear to ear. But Edmund wasn't finished. Not just yet. The next thing he did was he decapitated mother and then proceeded to defile her severed head. When he finished, Edmund would later describe placing mother's head on a shelf and screaming at it for over an hour. And then he grabbed his darts and used her face as a dartboard before finally obliterating her one last time by smashing her about the face with the hammer. And just to ensure that he would never have to hear mother's insults and degradation ever again, he cut mother's tongue and larynx out and attempted to do away with them into the garbage disposal. But even the garbage disposal was unable to break down the tough rubbery tissue that the vocal cords are made of and he ended up jamming the drain. Which didn't surprise Edmund when he considered just how much mother used to bitch and yell and scream at him across the more than two decades of his life. Yeah, go figure. Edmund decided that he needed to cover up mother's death by coming up with a story. So he decided he was going to tell people that mother took a vacation with her close friend, 59-year-old Sally Hallett. However, in order to make that story work, he was going to have to do away with Sally, too. So he called her up and invited her over for dinner and a movie, an invite which she accepted. However, when she got to Edmund's home, she was ambushed by him, who attacked her, strangled her to death, and decapitated her. He hid Sally's body along with his mother's and their heads in a closet and he did the best he could to make it look like nothing was amiss. And before he left, he wrote a note that read as follows. Approximately 5 a.m. Saturday. No need for her to suffer any more at the hands of this horrible, murderous butcher. It was quick, asleep, the way I wanted it. Not sloppy and incomplete, gents. Just a lack of time. I got things to do. Once Edmund was satisfied with his work and the way he left his mother's house, he got into his car and drove. He would eventually swap out his car for a rented green Chevy Impala and drove the rest of the nearly 1,400 miles or 2,250 kilometers without stopping to rest to the city of Pueblo, Colorado, which is deep into the state, more than halfway across, and it was a drive that would have taken at least 20 hours to make. With him, Edmund had three guns and 200 rounds of ammunition because he was thinking in his mind that there was going to be a massive nationwide manhunt for him, and he wanted to get into a shootout and hopefully die by cop. However, after arriving in Pueblo, he heard nothing about his last two murders on the news. 
So three days later, on April 23, 1973, Edmund decided to call the police from a local payphone there in Pueblo and turn himself in. However, when he did call, whomever it was that answered it did not take Edmund's call seriously and instructed him to just give them a call back later. Edmund did call the police back a few hours later, but decided to reach out to an officer that he knew back in Santa Cruz, California instead. Remember, Edmund had befriended some of his local police officers and often hung out with them at the jury room after he had failed to qualify for acceptance into the police academy. When Edmund got that officer on the phone, he confessed to murdering mother and her friend. The officer couldn't believe that he had the polite, quiet young man on the phone that he knew as Big Ed confessing to not only the brutal and sadistic murders of his mother and Sally, but he also had several more killings to confess to. When the Santa Cruz police received that call, they just couldn't quite believe it. It was coming from a phone booth in Pueblo, Colorado, from a 24-year-old man who had eaten with them and drank with them and talked with them for hours. Big Ed, Edmund Kemper. And now he was telling them that he had committed murder. In fact, double homicide four days earlier and then some. He had killed mother on Good Friday. Then he'd gone drinking with his cop buddies. He returned and invited his mother's friend Sally Hallett over for dinner and a movie and she was delighted. And when she arrived, he had killed her too, removed her head. Both bodies were stuffed into the closet in Mother's duplex. The Pueblo police were told where Edmund was at, and he waited for them to get there to arrest him. After he was taken into custody, Edmund provided his confession to not only the murders of Mother and her friend, but also to the murders of the six young women that he had picked up hitchhiking. Years later, when Edmund was asked why he decided to give up and turn himself in, he stated, The original purpose was gone. It wasn't serving any physical or real emotional purpose. It was just a pure waste of time. Emotionally, I couldn't handle it much longer. Toward the end there, I started feeling the folly of the whole damn thing. And at the point of near exhaustion, near collapse, I just said to hell with it and called it off. He also said that having the guns and hundreds of rounds of ammunition scared him. The Santa Cruz officer that Edmund had contacted was Sergeant Michael Alufi. Sergeant Alufi had been to Mother's house recently in order to confiscate a revolver that Edmund had recently purchased. Edmund knew that if they dispatched Sergeant Alufi to his house again, that he would have an understanding of the situation since he had been there before. And it was Sergeant Alufi who took the call and went to Mother's house to see what was going on, to see what he would find there. As soon as he walked through the door, Alufi could smell the unmistakable stench of human decomposition. He made his way through the house until he found the closet from which that smell seemed to be emanating. 
When he opened the door, Sergeant Alufi made the gruesome discovery. As soon as he spotted the heads with their hair covered in blood, he backed off. He secured the premises and called for homicide detectives and for the county coroner to get to the scene as soon as possible. The state the women were found in were just as Edmund had described. Both were decapitated, but mother's head had been much more battered and mutilated. They also found what was left of mother's larynx and tongue in the kitchen sink. The officers were beginning to realize that the quiet, unassuming young man that they used to share beers and appetizers with at their favorite local hangout was, in fact, the co-ed butcher that had been terrorizing the surrounding area for the past year. And what was even more disturbing was the fact that his killings and Mr. Mullen's killings were actually happening at times simultaneously. Investigators also came to realize that all that time that Edmund was spending his afternoons and evenings drinking and hanging out with them, he was actually studying law enforcement investigative techniques. It was all starting to make sense. Edmund never really did do much of the talking, but he was definitely paying close attention to what those officers and detectives were saying. And what's even more disturbing is the fact that much of the time they were talking about Edmund's murders and the victims that he was responsible for. All those young female hitchhikers that were vanishing. The officers often discussed what steps they were going to take, what leads they were going to follow, what clues that they were uncovering, as well as their strategies that they had mapped out for trying to apprehend him and all the while the killer that they were looking for was sitting right there taking in every word that they were saying, using it all to continue to elude capture. It also became clear just how easily Edmund was able to integrate himself with people. Even though his size was imposing, he had this way of being able to make people feel safe with a soft-spoken tone and calm demeanor. No wonder he was so easily able to offer rides to young girls and they just accepted. Even though the surrounding community, especially young college girls, had been warned, there was just something about Edmund Kemper. When detectives traveled to Pueblo, Colorado to bring Edmund back to California, he still appeared extremely calm and ready to go. It was as if Edmund had all of this self-awareness about himself and that he was an extremely dangerous individual who was incapable of any kind of self-control and that the only way for anyone to be safe around him is if he was kept securely locked up. In their first interview with Edmund, he wanted to talk and he waived his rights to be represented by an attorney. And he would end up talking for several hours, providing a full and detailed confession as to what he had done with the six young women that he picked up hitchhiking, as well as to mother and her good friend. He even so easily talked about the way he engaged in acts of 
necrophilia with both his victims' bodies and their decapitated heads. When you take into consideration the fact that Edmund had already had two killings under his belt from almost nine years earlier, it would bring Edmund's grand total to ten victims, solidifying his place as one of the most notorious serial killers in California history. Along with his confessions, Edmund would also go on to take investigators to the areas where he either buried or disposed of the various body parts of his victims that had yet to be recovered. As time went on and Edmund would be made to eventually face trial for his crimes, the stories he told of exactly what he did to each of his victims continued to grow more and more disturbing and grotesque. Edmund described these brutal, sadistic urges as stemming from his love of having total possession over a person, especially their heads, because that's where everything is. A person's eyes, their mouth, their brain. It's the central most important part of a person, and he loved keeping it all to himself. On May 7, 1973, Edmund was indicted on eight counts of first-degree murder. His defense attorney had also defended the two other killers who were murdering around the same time that he was, Mr. Frazier and Mr. Mullins. His attorney's plan from the start was to have Edmund plead not guilty by reason of insanity, but because of the extensive and detailed confessions that Edmund had provided following his arrest, it was going to be an uphill battle. So his attorney's only option was to plead insanity and hope for the best. Another big problem, aside from Edmund's confession, is how do you prove that someone as intelligent and articulate as Edmund clearly was is actually insane? The way Edmund talked about the lead up to the killings, it was obvious that he had all this planned out exceptionally well right down to his ability to befriend several of the local members of law enforcement, some of whom were actively working on the very murders that he was committing, just so that he could be one step ahead of them. It was pretty darn strategic. The one thing Edmund's attorney had going for him when it came to information that could be used in support of his insanity defense is the fact that Edmund had a history of mental health issues. He had been diagnosed as a teenager as a psychotic and a paranoid schizophrenic, and records did reflect that Edmund was deemed safe and no longer a threat to society and was released on parole, and to his attorney, this was obviously a mistake. Edmund was never cured. He was only able to fool the doctors enough into thinking that he was sane so he would be able to be set free. It makes the final eight murders that Edmund committed that much more tragic and horrific. If the experts hadn't contradicted themselves and went with their original diagnosis, Edmund Kemper may have never had been released and eight lives may have been saved. By the time Edmund's trial began on October 23, 1973, he had tried twice 
to take his own life by slitting his wrists, but both of those attempts failed. The prosecution had three different experts examine Edmund, and all three of them found him to be sane. They looked at Edmund's juvenile background that indicated that he was psychotic. He was then interviewed several times, including after being administered a dose of truth serum, which is a bunch of bullshit that is no longer used. There's nothing about that that is valid, and even if it was, it would raise a whole bunch of legal and ethical issues. But anyway, after giving Edmund this alleged truth serum, one of the psychiatrists testified in court that in addition to everything that Edmund confessed to, he stated to the court that Edmund also probably cannibalized some of his victims. It's not something Edmund originally confessed to, and just the fact that this doctor obtained this information after giving Edmund truth serum is even further proof that it probably is not true. And even if it was, that junk should have never made it into the testimony. The psychiatrist further testified that Edmund was very well aware and cognizant of everything that he was doing with each killing and that he was excited with the notion of becoming infamous for being a serial killer. That's the notoriety that he craved. On top of that, this expert said that Edmund knew what he was doing and he knew that it was wrong and that fact in and of itself is enough for Edmund to be found legally sane. And not only did he know what he was doing was wrong, he also displayed careful planning for each of his crimes and a careful cover-up. In Edmund's defense, his mental health expert testified that his crimes were the product of a very damaged and diseased mind, but that really doesn't fall into the state's technical definition of insanity. Edmund's younger sister, Alan, testified on his behalf. She described many of the strange things that he used to do as a child, some of which we went over, but the prosecution would not be deterred. He fought back against the defense witnesses in order to get their experts to admit that the acts Edmund committed, the things he did with and to his victims, were beyond abhorrent. It was also important for the prosecution to impress upon the jury that because Edmund chose to live in a fantasy world, which is what they were getting from Edmund's sister and his attorney, just because he had all of these deviant fantasies, it didn't mean that Edmund was insane. On November 1st, 1973, Edmund took the stand to speak on his own behalf. What the jury thought of Edmund based on what they already knew about him and his crimes, it isn't clear. They knew what Edmund had confessed to. Because he was willing to talk, they did have an understanding of what Edmund was like because they were able to hear him talk about what he had to say about himself and his actions. On the stand, Edmund discussed his own state of mind and his own mental health. He himself attempted to get the jury to understand and accept that his desire to own a woman or possess her, along with him engaging in the acts of necrophilia, 
were strong indicators of him being a mentally unstable individual. Edmund expressed his remorse for what he had done, and he has said that he tried to self-medicate with alcohol in order to feel better about the things that he did, along with trying to get rid of the urges that he had, at least to get them to calm down, but the sexual excitement and the arousal that he experienced when he decapitated a person, he told the jury it was like a drug to him. He said at times it felt like he was two different people inside him. One was normal and the other was a killer. And when he knew he was being taken over by the killer in him, when those little zapples crept into his mind, it was as if he experienced a blackout. He had those feelings with each of his victims, even way back when he was 15 and he murdered his grandmother and his grandfather. He experienced those same feelings of being overtaken by the killer side of his personality. And while Edmund admitted that he confessed to engaging in acts of cannibalism to the expert, he did roll back on that, stating that he only said that to boost his insanity defense. Nonetheless, the jury found Edmund to be sane and guilty. He was convicted of eight counts of first-degree murder. Because he was convicted during the time in the United States that the death penalty had been abolished, Edmund was sentenced to life in prison. When the judge asked Edmund's defense attorney what his client thinks his punishment should be, he told the judge that that was an easy answer because it was something that Edmund had been fantasizing about for as long as he could remember. If you recall, it was Edmund who used to pretend play with his sisters, that he was either in the gas chamber or on the electric chair, that she would tie him down, flip a switch, and he would fall to the ground and writhe in pain. That is how Edmund Kemper played as a child, and that is what he wanted for his ultimate fate but it was not to be in the cards for him, thanks to the Supreme Court. As many of you know, during the 1970s, the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit were interested in getting to know about the inner workings of the mind of this new breed of killer that we now call serial killers. So they thought what better way to get into the minds of these people than to speak to them directly. They wanted to go into prisons and talk to the most notorious killers with the hopes of using what they learn in profiling future killers, especially when they have yet to be identified. They started off by reaching out to a variety of violent offenders, which included mass killers, spree killers, assassins, and of course, serial killers. They had information and data related to 118 of their victims, including one survivor. The FBI were looking to gather as much information as they could about the planning of the killings and the killings, how they were being carried out, along with what the killers did in the aftermath and how they felt and what was going through their minds once they killed, what they fantasized about, and what was going on with them leading up to the next time they killed. Of the 36 men who agreed to take part in this interview process, this study of sorts, Edmund Kemper was one of them. In his interviews, Edmund at times wanted to give the impression that he could lose his temper at the drop of a hat, 
and if he did, he could do a lot of damage. Telling FBI agent Robert Ressler one time during an interview that they were having that if he went ape shit in there, that he would be in a lot of trouble and that he would be able to screw his head off and place it on the table to greet the prison guard. Agent Ressler tried not to give off any indication that he was nervous or that he wouldn't be able to defend himself. Even though Edmund said he was just joking, Agent Ressler never interviewed Edmund alone again. Another agent, John Douglas, who also interviewed Edmund, described him as one of the most intelligent inmates he'd ever spoken to. The agents were kind of surprised that Edmund wanted to speak to them in the first place, but they figured that Edmund was curious about them just as they were curious about him. Of course, they were surprised by Edmund's sheer size, but it became abundantly clear as soon as they started talking to him that his intelligence was way above that of the average person, and he also had a great deal of self-awareness. And Edmund was a pretty chatty guy, and he would speak to the FBI agents for several hours at a time. Edmund often came across as detached and distant, but also introspective. He did show very little to no emotion about anything that they discussed, with the exception of the way that Edmund was treated by mother. Though he did say that he thought mother was particularly mean and vindictive towards him because he reminded her of father and that she hated father and Edmund saw himself as an easy target for mother to vent on, that she made him sleep in a dark basement with no windows that was infested with rats because she was afraid that he would sexually abuse his sisters. During the many hours that Edmund spent in that basement by himself, it was in that time of isolation and darkness that his hatred of women intensified. The way mother treated him made Edmund feel as if he was a very dangerous person. But at the same time, she made him feel humiliation and shame for who he turned out to be. And one of his ways of venting his own frustrations early on was to kill their cats. The longer Edmund was made to live with mother, the worse he became and the more anger he felt towards women but it was mother whom he despised the most in this world. In talking to Edmund, the behavioral unit, agents who spoke to him came to realize that the killing to Edmund was a game to be played and to be won. He learned the best ways to get young women to feel very comfortable around him. He was able to manipulate them and make them feel like he was this big, gentle, cuddly giant. Edmund didn't size people up the way normal everyday people do. When Edmund sized up a person, he sought to satisfy his own goals, which were to manipulate, control, and own whichever woman he was targeting. Edmund began having fantasies about sex and death very early on in his adolescence, so he had a lot of years to think about what he was going to eventually end up doing. 
He played out these violent scenarios in his head, the things that he wanted to do that would combine his sexual urges with his violent homicidal urges. But his ultimate goal was to possess women, which to Edmund meant to take her life and make her his own and the things that he did, the defiling, the necrophilia, the dismemberment, and the decapitation, all of that was to fulfill that desire. But Edmund's most overwhelming fantasy, the one that he obsessed over the most, was the one where he would be able to rid himself of mother forever. Before he ever killed anybody, Edmund used to quietly slip into mother's bedroom while she slept and imagined beating her about the head and face with a hammer. Agent Douglas opined that it is likely that Edmund's mother had a hand in making a serial killer out of her son, that Edmund began the killing of the young female hitchhikers as a means of practicing what he ultimately wanted to do to his mother. I wonder, what if Edmund had killed mother first before he ever killed anybody else? Would his killing have started and ended with her? Would Edmund Kemper III been able to have gone on with his life as a normal, average guy with good relationships and social skills? If he had had a strong woman figure in his life that built him up and showed him the potential that he had of being one of only less than 0.03% of the population that is as tall or taller than he is, instead of tearing him down, berating him, humiliating him, abusing him, because Edmund came across as a very sensitive young man, talkative, friendly, sociable, along with a great sense of humor. And the agents with the FBI's behavioral unit tended to believe that the manner in which he killed, dismembered, decapitated, and defiled was more of a fetish as opposed to being sadistic. It's difficult to overlook the things that Edmund's hands were indeed capable of. Perhaps his fate would have played out differently if only he had killed mother first. Thank you for listening. I hope you have a fun Halloween. And until next time, sweet dreams.